Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, my name is Katie Gorka. I'm Director for Civil Society and the American Dialogue at the Heritage Foundation. I'm very pleased to welcome you to this very timely and important webinar. When I attended graduate school at the London School of Economics, granted this was some years ago, I had a professor about whom it was rumored that he was a Marxist. What's remarkable about that to me is not that he was a Marxist, but that it, but that it remained a rumor. Nothing he ever said or did gave away his ideological or political leaning. Indeed, throughout my whole undergraduate and graduate experience, I never knew any of my professor's politics. It was considered unprofessional, even unscholarly, for professors to bring their politics into the classroom. How different our world is today. I am shocked by the stories I hear from our young interns about professors who talk openly about the idiocy or the racism or the white supremacy of conservatives, how it's nearly impossible for these students to even challenge that assertion because they worry that to do so will then label them a white supremacist. They describe professors who have no qualms at all about bringing their politics into the classroom. Equally sad are the stories I hear from friends who find out that as soon as they send their children off to college, they become indoctrinated and start spouting leftist talking points. I know that many of us feel one of the great blessings of this COVID shutdown is the fact that we got time with our kids that we not, would not have otherwise had. My husband and I just got to spend nearly a year with our college-aged son. I'm not sure that he saw living at home as a blessing, but we certainly did. Yet we shouldn't have to rely on a global epidemic to bring our children back into our sphere of influence. This must change. As Professor Ellis pointed out to me recently, there was a time when sending kids off to college was a very big deal. Many parents had to think long and hard about the fact that their young adult child would not be earning an income during those four years and that they would be incurring tremendous expenses, even debt. People would even mortgage their houses to send their kids to college. Today, for what? To be taught to hate our country? To be taught critical race theory? This must change. And frankly, all of us have to work to bring about that change. With that, I'm very pleased to turn the mic over to Dr. Alan Gelso. And I invite all of our speakers to come to the screen. Dr. Gelzo is the um, Dr. Gelzo is the um, senior research scholar at the Council of the Humanities and director of the Initiative on Politics and Statesmanship at the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. He's also a visiting scholar here at the Heritage Foundation. Dr. Gelzo. Thank you, Katie. And I hope I'm being heard and seen electronically, digitally, and every other way. Yes, you are. Excellent. Let me extend a welcome to everyone attending this Heritage Foundation webinar on university indoctrination, how it started, and how to stop it. I am, as Katie said, Dr. Alan Gelso. I'm a historian, 
and also the B. Kenneth Simon Visiting Fellow at Heritage's Fulner Institute. The American university system has long been one of the jewels in the nation's crown. As long ago as 1910, the United States was home to nearly 1,000 colleges and 300,000 undergraduate students, while at the same time, France had only 16 colleges with only 40,000 students. But especially in the post-World War II years, with the assistance of the GI Bill, American college enrollment swelled by the 1970s to 12 million. By the middle of the last decade, that number had reached over 20 million in almost 4,000 different institutions. And the undergraduate degree became the entrance ticket to the middle class. In effect, colleges and universities became the thin neck of the hourglass through which aspirants to wealth and prosperity had to pass. Yet that same system has been showing signs of serious dysfunction. As the demographic pool of 18 to 22 year olds began to shrink and has shrunk since 2008, colleges and universities have seen their populations shrink as well, with the latest figures on college enrollments showing a slippage to 16 million. The pandemic has dealt an even more serious blow. In California alone, applications for first-year students have dropped by 14%. Overall, colleges and universities have dropped 650,000 jobs, 13% of its total workforce. But numbers have told only part of the tale of higher education misery. Nothing has seized more headlines than a rising sense that colleges and universities have lost any understanding of themselves as places where the best minds search after truth, and instead have become a rack and wheel for imposing conformity to a variety of mostly left-wing political formulas, the most recent being systemic racism. A physicist at Michigan State University was forced to resign as vice president for research and graduate studies after objections were made to his research on genomic aspects of racial difference. An associate professor of politics at Converse College was threatened with termination for refusing to submit to, quote, newly mandated diversity and anti-bias training, unquote. A 31-year veteran of the Skidmore College faculty was denounced by student activists for being present at a support the police rally that was typified as engaging in hateful conduct. John McWhorter, a professor of linguistics at Columbia University, has estimated that up to 150 such cases of professional cancellations have taken place or are pending, and cancel culture has now entered our vocabularies as a term of regular and frightening currency. Have our groves of academe become laboratories for ideological indoctrination? All of this is a great source of pain to me. I am a product of a great university. I've taught in higher education all my life, and I love the great university to which I am now attached. I have especially loved the life of the scholar, 
pursuing questions wherever they lead. I've loved the life of the historian because it's made friends for me across all centuries and countries. I have loved the life of learning because, in the words of Jean Leclerc, it is that love of learning which is twin to the desire for God. So today, I'm a man burdened with grief for things that I love. It was Alexander Hertzen's strategy at moments like this to ask two questions. Who is to blame and what is to be done? To answer those questions, we have with us today a distinguished panel of university professors and education policy analysts. First, Dr. John Ellis, the distinguished professor emeritus of German literature at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Professor Ellis has taught at universities in England, Wales, and Canada, and joined the UCSC in 1966, serving as dean of the graduate division in 1977 to 86. He is the author of 10 books, including The Breakdown of Higher Education, How It Happened, The Damage It Does, and What Can Be Done. Second, Dr. Scott Yenor, the Washington Fellow at the Claremont Institute's Center for the American Way of Life. He is also a political philosophy professor and the author recently of The Recovery of Family Life, Exposing the Limits of Modern Ideologies from Baylor University Press. Third, Anna K. Miller is the education policy analyst at the Idaho Freedom Foundation in Boise, Idaho. And of course, the opinions presented and discussed here are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent those of the Heritage Foundation or our home institutions. We turn first to Dr. John Ellis. Thank you. Um, well, at the moment, uh, higher education's position in our society is a very strange one. Any advanced society functions by setting up a whole range of institutions like police, fire, courts, schools, telling them what it wants them to do, funding them to do it, and then they go and do what they, we, we create them for. Except that one of them has decided not to do that. That one the only one is higher education. It has decided to repurpose itself, to give itself a purpose that was not the primary one that it was created for. What it was supposed to do was create new knowledge and a skill and well-informed citizenry. But academia has now decided that its real job its primary job is to is to promote a radical political ideology. Now, the jump, this jump from one purpose to another, is not some random alternative or uh, a mission creep. No, the uh, purpose that academia has substituted is so remote from its real one that it's actually the only one that the charters of most colleges and universities make a point of categorically forbidding. Uh, that's a pretty astonishing fact, but that is true. It's the only purpose that is explicitly forbidden in most charters. Now, why did those charters do that? Well, because their framers knew that if campuses promoted political ideologies, it would destroy them. They knew that those ideologies were going to be rigid enough to prevent 
the, the freedom of thought and the, uh, the exploration of new ideas, they knew that the two purposes, academic and political, were not just different, they were polar opposites. One requires unconstrained thought and the other requires a fixed commitment. In other words, one can't coexist with the other. One can't allow the other to exist. That's how far off course academia has gone in this capricious re self-repurposing. Now, another way of assessing this repurpose is, is to look at the people involved. Now, we're not just dealing with too many left of center faculty in relation to right of center faculty. It's really a different problem altogether. We're dealing with two very different kinds of people. Um, on the one hand, you have academic teacher scholars. On the other hand, political activists. On the campuses, the activists are now clearly the controlling majority. They are, they are, there may be uh, certainly a number of academic teacher scholars left, but they do not have the numbers to control policy. Now, these two types of people want fundamentally different things. An academic teacher wants students to think analytically and independently. A political activist wants the exact opposite. A political activist can't have students analyzing the strengths and weaknesses of different ideas because they might choose the wrong one. So it's inevitable that political activists will squelch academic habits of thought. They can't allow them which means that these are the last people we should ever want as college faculty. Because what they want of students destroys higher education. Now from this, a number of conclusions follow. First, the campuses will never reform themselves because from their point of view, from the point of view of the controlling majority, nothing needs reforming. They're happy with it. The second is that you can't persuade people uh, to do better. You can't persuade the campuses to do better because you can't persuade people whose values and goals are the exact opposite of yours. The third conclusion is that it's very doubtful whether you can regulate them into doing their proper job by whatever means, rules or laws because that won't change who they are. They're political activists. They're not academic teachers, scholars. They don't have the ability to be that. They don't have the interest in being that. And the fourth conclusion I draw is that universities will only behave like universities again when they are staffed by and controlled by academic teachers again and not by political activists. Now, I think all of this tells us where people who are interested in reform should be looking, and that is they should be looking to the public. Public pays for one thing and is getting something very different. And yet still, for the most part, the public is, seems willing to put up with this. And uh, it still supports academia through taxes, tuition, donations. So if you want reform, I think you have to change public opinion. Now, it's true that the public's mood generally has become more skeptical, but the way it actually behaves is still 
largely unchanged. And so the most useful thing that critics of higher education could do is to get the public to understand what's really happening on the campuses. Now, there is some good news here, I think. Public behavior is beginning to change. Uh, Dr. Kelso alluded to changes in enrollment. Uh, 2011, there were 20 and a half million students in higher education. By eight years later, the population of the United States had risen by 5%, so that other things being equal, that would mean a rise to 21.5 million. But the actual figure for 2019 is all pre-COVID, uh, is 17.5, according to the uh, National Student Clearinghouse Research Center. So that's actually a drop from the 21.5 you could have expected to 17.5, which is 4 million. That's a very big drop in such a short time, in eight years. Uh, it's 19%. Uh, in other words, almost one in five students and or parents have decided that higher education is really not what it should be. Now, the change hasn't caused a panic yet because it hasn't been widely reported. And one of the reasons for that is that the drop is not visible or less visible in the most well-known institutions, which have enough applications that they can simply dig deeper into that applicant pool. So my university, University of California, uh, saw its application, freshman applications dropped by 5% over the last two application seasons. Uh, but it went ahead with an increase in freshman enrollment anyway. It just simply ignored the decline. But most parents are still sending their children to college, and that's understandable. It's a well-established habit, and after a while, habitual behavior just doesn't get thought through each time. Our job as reformers is to try and get the public off autopilot, to get them to weigh afresh the sacrifices they make against the gains they can expect. The sacrifices are, of course, huge. They're very large sums of money, but also four years of lost earnings, and I think even more important, a four-year loss, a four-year um, gap in a young person's progress to independence and adulthood. Now, once the benefits were huge too, they matched, they matched the sacrifices. But now the sacrifice is still as large as ever, but for most, the gain is now either much diminished or I suspect it's even a minus quantity. Students who have absorbed radical leftism are actually deficient both in understanding and general knowledge. And their development may actually have been stunted rather than enhanced. Thinking of how much has been sacrificed for so little Steve Gruber recently exclaimed, are parents insane? And the answer is no, they're not insane, but they are stuck in a habit that badly needs rethinking. When enough parents and students decide that colleges are no longer worth it, campuses will start to fail. At that point, vacant buildings and libraries will be available so that it would be impossible in theory to rebuild serious academic institutions from the ground up.
Now, one can certainly doubt whether this is going to happen. Well, I hope it does. But what seems to be beyond any doubt, whatever, is that reform will only come through a withdrawal of the public's support of higher education. One-fifth of them have already made a good start. But many more will need to join in if we're ever again to have colleges that are not incompetent and malevolent. The stakes for the country seem to me enormous. The radical left is now using the added leverage that the campuses have given it to eviscerate the First Amendment, to promote increasingly extreme hard left policies, and to take over one profession after another, especially the press and the schools. Reformers will need to convince the public that if they continue to support academia as it now is, they're endangering our entire way of life. Dr. Gelsel. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Ellis. We open the digital floor now to Dr. Scott Yenor. Yes, thank you, Alan, and thank you, John, for those remarks. Um, so uh, I share very much John's analysis of uh, the state of higher education. And uh, what we've done here in Idaho is we've uh, begun to prepare some reports uh, that have the aim of both informing public opinion about what the state of our universities are in this pretty red state, and also, uh, more specifically, of helping the public to understand that the mission of the universities and the reality on the ground of the universities are really two different things. Our state board uh, has established universities here in Idaho for public universities. And uh, the goal of the universities here is to advance knowledge and to serve the common good. And insofar as social justice ideology, which is what we call it in our uh, research here, um, in, infuses the university, so, uh, th we, we argue that it can neither advance knowledge and it definitely compromises the ability to secure the public good. And in fact, it undermines everything that is great about America. And, uh, and so on, on the basis of that premise that social justice ideology is harmful, to the goals that the universities have set for themselves, we undertook a report that tried to give an account of how deeply and where social justice ideology had penetrated our public universities in Idaho. We started with our first report. The handout is available on the uh, little, little box over there under handouts. It's a handsome little volume. Um, uh, and it's called Social Justice Ideology in Idaho Higher Education. And we looked at Boise State University. And uh, we divided the report into two sections. The first is, what does Boise State plan to do? And how far have they executed those plans? And we've looked at uh, specifically at what the administrators have said they wanted to do and the, uh, the kind of strategic plan that they've set for themselves and then how far they've carried out that strategic plan over the course of the time uh, since it was announced. Uh, we've tried to track the kinds of policies that have changed, uh, hiring policies, free speech policies, harassment policies, Title IX policies, and other things um, that have changed on campus. So we could give the citizens, the legislators, um, especially information about how far the ideology had penetrated. 
so that uh, they could um, you know, know what is going on and know that the mission that they've set for the universities is not what the universities are accomplishing. And then in the second part of our study, which is what Anna is gonna talk about next, uh, we also looked at the student experience in the curriculum. I'm gonna give it to Anna now to talk about that. Anna, you have the floor. Hey everyone, and thanks uh, to Heritage for having us here today. Um, so as Scott mentioned, we are analyzing all the public universities in Idaho um, through the same framework. Um, we began at Boise State and a report on the University of Idaho will be published um, within the next uh, two weeks. I believe February 22nd is when we're hoping to have it out by. So be looking out for that. Um, so I'm gonna go over the second half of the Boise State report, um, which analyzes curriculum and student experience. And I'm also gonna highlight just some things that we found um, in our upcoming University of Idaho report as well that are a little bit different than what we found at Boise State. So our project, we really had to ask, how do you measure social justice education? And so we began by imagining the student experience as a path through general education and then through a major. So our report measures specifically how much social justice ideology captures departments by examining four main factors, which are um, department mission statements, program learning outcomes, contributions to general education, and then required major courses. And then based on these indicators, we found that students encounter social justice education throughout the curriculum at Boise State, as well as at the University of Idaho. Basically, students cannot avoid exposure to this ideology, though they can avoid things like American history, American government, or literature. Um, so, for example, students at Boise State are required to take at least four general education courses that are dedicated to social justice. Um, students at University of Idaho have to take at least five. And then the rest of social justice education for every individual student really depends on the major they choose. And we found some departments emphasize social justice more than others. At, at Boise State, we found six departments that were really deeply infused with this ideology. And among those were things like gender studies, sociology, global studies, but also some professional departments that we didn't expect, um, like history, um, criminal justice, the writing center, also departments like the College of Engineering and the College of Business and Economics have adopted um, a commitment to social justice and their shared values. Um, and at the University of Idaho, we found 11 departments um, that were really heavily infused with social justice. Um, another interesting thing we found is that over 70 courses at University of Idaho and then 80 courses at Boise State offer what is called um, service learning and service learning, also called experiential learning, is basically created to divert university resources toward progressive causes. And um, service learning sounds kind of like providing students an internship or you know, real world experience in jobs, but really it's, uh, it's never really that. Um, it's almost always working for a leftist activist group or nonprofit, specifically for the purposes of preparing students to be community organizers or activists. Um, so experiential learning is really a strong indicator of the presence of social, social justice because it drops all pretenses that teachers and students should be engaged in the search for knowledge. And instead, it really just prepares students for a career as activists. We also examined um, residence halls in the second half of our report. So we found that social justice had even crept into where students are living and sleeping. Um, we looked at the mission statements of residence halls and who they're hiring. Um, at Boise State, we found every residence hall director expressed commitment to social justice. Basically, university housing at Boise State is no longer seen as just a business relationship between the university and the student. Instead, it's really seen as another opportunity just to indoctrinate students. Um, university of Idaho also has some an interesting group called um, Bias Incident Response Team that affects where students 
live. Um, basically, the bias incident response team is dedicated to enforcing the social justice orthodoxy on campus, and they police um, the inclusive environment that social justice warriors really want to build. Um, this team is not yet necessarily a full-fledged secret police for social justice. They do have some free speech commitments, but they encourage students and staff members to sort of tell on each other. Um, so this team is really kind of the most Orwellian social justice organization on their campus. And so we conclude at both the University of Idaho and Boise State that residence life is thoroughly permeated with social justice ideology, so much so that residents really cannot avoid it in most of campus life. Um, but there is hope for reforming these universities and causing them to return to the pursuit of knowledge and uh, supporting the common good, like talk with Scott was talking about earlier. So our report has nine policy recommendations for reform, and these are specific to Idaho, but they could easily be adapted to suit the needs of other states. Um, key to reform, we think, is not only de-emphasizing and eliminating social justice initiatives at universities, but also disrupting the ability for universities to provide stable careers for social justice activists. Um, so we do recommend things like protection of free speech on college campuses, but we don't think that protecting free speech is enough to solve the problem. Um, it really matters what public universities are teaching. Um, they could protect free speech, but still be indoctrinating students with these ideologies. So that's why it's really important for the legislature um, in every state to act to pull out social justice ideology from its roots. Um, and so one of our main goals, uh, one of our main policy recommendations is to restrict budgets for universities that are calculated by this ideology until um, it is removed. Uh, so that concludes a brief summary of the second half of our report and I'll hand things back to you, Dr. Galzo. All right, thank you, Anna. With uh, questions that we want to start with now, I think I'd actually like to start with you, Anna, and put a question back to you. And that is, how has the Idaho legislature responded to the information you developed, the reports you've developed? What are what are legislators doing and able to do to reform higher education? So the Idaho legislator has actually responded as a whole very positively to our report. They've actually based questions on our report when university presidents came um, to present in front of them. They based really specific questions off of what we found in our report, and they've never done that before um, in previous years. Um, they also, we have about five of our nine policy recommendations in the works in the legislature right now. Um, there's a lot of conservative support right now. Now, this might not be the same in every state. This is somewhat of a red state project, probably, um, but we have a lot of legislators on board with this. Um, another thing is the media has been kind of working for the universities, not saying that social justice ideology isn't in these universities, but saying that it's a good thing that it's so deep in this university. So that's really all that they can say. They can't prove it's not there. They can only say whether or not it's good or bad. And um, I think, you know, that's already been debated and much has been written and said about that. So um, legislators can decide for themselves um, what they think. And right now they think it's a bad thing and they're working on budgetary restrictions to um, kind of, pressure these universities to change. Um, they're working on giving students choices over the fees they pay so that they don't have to uh, fund any groups on campus that they don't want to or any radical student governments that they don't want to. Um, there's a resolution right now that is going through the legislature um, soon that says that social justice education is against the common good 
and directs the universities to eliminate all courses dedicated to these things, all services, all trainings and programs dedicated to these things. So there's a lot that legislatures can do. They do have to get some guts to do it. Um, and in a red state, that's definitely possible. All right. Scott, maybe this would be a good moment to stop and give us a good 25 word definition of social justice. Because when you use a term like social justice, it sounds at first hearing almost innocuous. I mean, who is not for justice? Uh, who would not like to see a just society? So what is it that you can object to when someone talks about being an activist for social justice, or as it sometimes uh, turns into, a social justice warrior? What is this social justice that we hear talked about so much? Well, it, it comes under a lot of different names. Critical race theory is another way of thinking about it, critical theory. Uh, we try to define it simply as the view that society is based on power structures that divide it between the, the dominant mi majority and the victimized minorities. And uh, the minorities are given their identity from the victimhood that they suffer at the hands of that supposedly dominant minority. So we divide the campus into good guys and bad guys. Um, the good guys are the victims. Uh, in this case, the aggrieved minorities uh, would include uh, blacks, women, uh, homosexuals, transgendered folks. And uh, the dominant majority is white, straight, cis males. And, um, and when you divide the world into such groups, and uh, you, I mean, that's both a false thing and it's pernicious to the actual common, uh, the idea of common citizenship and mutual forbearance. So uh, we actually don't spend a ton of time in this report uh, defining it. We spend two pages talking about what it is and about 25 pages uh, on how deeply it has penetrated the university. Um, because, you know, I, we think other people have done a great job on this, including John Ellis's book. Um, but that, that's my quick stab. I've talked more than 25 words, Alan, but your question was more than 25 words, so I hope I'm within my rights. I'm afraid that's uh, that's an academic failing. We uh, we are we live by words and we tend to generate a lot of them. Uh, I think it'd be safe to say then that in fact social justice is really not about social. It's not really about society. It's about uh, grievance organizations, which have political points and political rewards they want to win for themselves. And it's not about justice either, because. For one thing, they don't believe that there is such a thing as justice in any abstract or meaningful sense of the word. Justice is merely a word that is used to describe who has power and who does not. And when you begin to describe justice merely as power, then power simply becomes the way you have of stomping down someone else whom you don't like. By the time you understand what is meant by social and justice, social justice doesn't really seem to be all that appetizing after all it in fact it has the mask removed and you begin to see it for a very different uh, entity indeed uh, professor ellis can i put a, a practical question that has uh, come to us through the uh, the question box and uh, that is that is from someone who who still wants to send someone to college but is not quite sure how or what they should do about it and this comes as a question from Molly. And here's the question. 
how does a college student ascertain whether a prospective college will support or at least tolerate conservative thought? Well, it's very much a, a bit by bit kind of answer. I mean, in general, if you were to simply put, you know, throw a dart into a board with the, the names of all institutions in the United States, you'd almost certainly end up in the wrong place. So you have to have uh, either inside knowledge of particular groups within universities, for example, uh, Claremont McKenna College, the politics department, you'd do well there. That doesn't mean you'd do well in other departments. Uh, so if you have it, I mean, particularly the children of academics have some inside knowledge about where there are departments that are not heavily politicized. Um, but if you want institute, whole institutions that are not politicized, then I can only think of three or four. I don't want to give their actual names because <laughs> it would embarrass them. But um, it's clear that I can think of four where you could safely send children and they would get a good education. But that's a pretty low number uh, in, in a, a universe that's, you know, ranks in four figures in the thousands. Um, and the one thing to remember is that things are getting worse all the time. So that, for example, I mean, I I know on campuses I'm familiar with, uh, situations have deteriorated in the last five years. So, for example, I would have, in a particular case I know of, I would have recommended the computer science department five years ago. I wouldn't now uh, because there has been a, in this particular place I'm thinking of, a tremendous press by the radical left to take over that department and they've succeeded in harassing the two finest scholars in the department who are both conservatives until one left and the other's thinking of leaving. So, you know, it's a moving target. You need inside knowledge. Uh, there may be three or four institutions you are probably safe at. All right, let me come back to Anna and the world of things in Idaho. Idaho has, has had some unusual incidents take place, especially I'm thinking on the Boise State campus. Uh, there is a program there that has, it's known by the acronym BUILD. And I believe there was also something of a flap over a coffee shop on Kansas, uh, on campus, a coffee shop that activists made their target because it's part of a franchise where a coffee shop, this is part of the franchise, but across town, displayed an American flag with a blue stripe. In other words, this is a you know, support the police uh, uh, gesture. Can you tell us exactly what is happening with some of these incidents at Boise State? Sure. So the BUILD program is basically a teacher training program. It's really a teacher re-education program. They do a lot of implicit bias training there for professors on campus, um, and they uh, give uh, professors certain benefits if they participate. Um, the Big City Coffee scandal, um, so that occurred because there was a new coffee vendor that came to campus that all the students voted for. And there's this student government at Boise State called the Inclusive Excellence Student Council. And they 
are appointed by this um, one administrator of Boise State named Francisco Salinas, who is the director of, I believe it's director, assistant to the director of equity initiatives. He appoints specific radical activist students to this inclusive excellence student council board. And these students thought that Big City Coffee coming to campus was a symbol of white supremacy because um, the owner was engaged to a police officer and she flew a blue thin line flag at her downtown location, not at the Boise State campus, but at her location in downtown Boise. And um, so her fiance, Kevin Holtry, he actually was shot five times in the line of duty pursuing an armed and dangerous fugitive, and he's now in a wheelchair. Um, so that's one of the main reasons that she has a thin blue line flag. It's not really political to her. It's about supporting her fiance who she loves and who's a hero. And it's also about um, how she grew up. Um, she experienced some uh, really traumatic family life where she was um, assaulted and she had first responders save her on multiple occasions um, and she wouldn't be alive today without them. So it's very meaningful to her um, to support first responders for these reasons. It has nothing to do with race, nothing to do with politics, it's just um, for personal reasons. And yet these students on campus claim that because she had this, this flag at her downtown shop that she was a white supremacist and that it was a symbol of hate for her to be on campus. And so they met with administrators and at Boise State students on this council have significant power to make recommendations for policy and things like that to the administration. And um, they basically worked with administrators and administrators reinforced what they said. They actually, Francisco Salinas said that um, when they get Boise State off of campus, or not Boise State, when they get a uh, big city coffee off of Boise State's campus, it could be the beginning of a revolution where they say they have a standard for corporate partnerships that they have. Um, that they bring in. And so they really empower these student activists to make an environment that was very untenable for this coffee shop. They actually told um, the owner, Sarah Fenley of the coffee shop, that she could stay if she provided scholarships to um, marginalized students. She, you know, employs tons of students in her, uh, in her shop, and um, she's even paid for some of her um, employees to go to college before at other places in the state. So she already does a lot of good for students, but as a small business, she simply couldn't afford to start handing out scholarships to tons of students, but she would have loved to serve them on their campus and most students wanted them there. So that's kind of how this scandal um, occurred. She was forced to leave campus um, because the environment was just so bad that she was afraid of riots and protesters coming to her shop. So that's what happened. <laughs> So this is what counts as social justice today. Scott, this, um, this, is, this is the kind of thing where you almost wanna say, I don't think we're in Idaho anymore. Uh, <laughs> tell us about your report and about how it can make its effect felt in a broader context than just Idaho. Yes, thanks, Alan. Uh, so when we conceived of this report that we did on Boise State, we thought it would be reproducible elsewhere. Um, what we try to do is provide indicators where to look for social justice uh, ideology and, uh, and provide a framework within which you can draw uh, what individual universities are doing. So, uh, so we divide the thing into two sections, the first part on administrative plans and policies, the second part on curriculum and student experience. Uh, we try to tell everyone what to look for. Uh, find the strategic plan that a university has set for its diversity and inclusion policies. 
um, and give an account of what they have done over the course of time. Here are the policies you should look for. You should look for their Title IX policies, their harassment policies. You should go to FIRE, uh, the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, find out how FIRE has graded them on free speech and such. And just, and, and our hope is that uh, people who are interested in overseeing and informing the public about what uh, their universities are doing could take our framework, contact us, we'll give, we'll, uh, we'll provide a framework for you, and you can take out the Idaho stuff and put in the stuff at UC Santa Cruz or at Texas <laughs> or at Kansas State. Um, and if we can get hundreds of these things written, and I, you know, I do think it's kind of a red state project because the yeah. legislature might hear more, but uh, you know, to keep everything in perspective and to gain perspective on how far social justice ideology has penetrated uh, public universities in red state. I think these reports, uh, if they're reproduced elsewhere, could form a good basis for providing a comprehensive analysis of where we stand. And, uh, and then also there could be policy initiatives in all these states that are shared um, where, uh, and, and there's cross-fertilization uh, in the policy area and the legislatures could learn from one another on what could work uh, to minimize uh, what has gone on. I mean, ultimately John's point is a very deep and penetrating point that is, unless these universities want to do it, they won't do it. Uh, can the legislatures make them want to dismantle uh, the infrastructures that they have here? We're kind of, we want to test that proposition in places where uh, it is most congenial to do it. And um, so we're hoping, as I say, that the reproducibility of this report can lead to some sort of policy fertilization across uh, red state America. Yeah. Um, over and over again, how much language uh, is key here. I talked about social justice and the way that phrase is on the surface unobjectionable until you actually unpack what is meant and the way it's used, each of the words is used. I think the same thing is true when you hear talk about uh, diversity, you hear about equity, you hear about inclusion, and who can object to diversity? Who can object to equity? Who, possibly in their right mind, or at least in right spirit, object to inclusion? Um, until you start to unpack how the terms are used, and it turns out, in fact, that in the cases we're talking about, we're really looking at an Orwellian inversion of those terms. Diversity, in fact, does not mean diversity. It means selectivity of certain favored groups, Equity means not balance. It, 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 what instead it refers to rewards being given to favored groups. And, uh, and inclusion, in fact, means only the inclusion of those who are recognized as being wanted to be included. And if you don't happen to be a member of one of those quote unquote included groups, kiss goodbye to inclusion because you simply won't be included. In some respects, you probably won't even be recognized as existing. Uh, Professor Ellis, you have a comment, please, please. Jump well, um, yeah, I I have a slightly um, even more skeptical version of what social justice is about and what it means. I mean, look, they know they can't say they're promoting radical leftism because that's 
blatantly illegal to use a public institution to promote a political cause. So social justice is a polite way of saying far left policies. And and the the particular ones, I mean you're right, they're all they're all part of it. But I think the main thing is simply it's it's a way of evading coming out and admitting that it's really about far left politics and, pre and and using public institutions to illegally promote them. Um, but the other thing I want to say, Scott, is uh, I think you're right about the reproducibility aspect of your study in, in other states being important. But, you know, you wouldn't even need that to have an effect. If, if you have successes, I mean, if you actually produce reform by means of your study, if it leads to a reform, other states are going to be watching and they won't even need you to tell them to do the same thing. They'll, they'll be there. I mean, people in Kansas and Nebraska will be, will be noticing what happened and they will be immediately going after uh, what you've done in their own states. But uh, as you pointed out, uh, in my state, California, it is pointless. In fact, I was saying to you earlier, we we did produce a report. The California Association of Scholars produced a report seven years ago. Uh, and um, we tried to get the university to listen. And uh, it, it was completely hopeless. So the reason it was hopeless is because we don't have the public behind us in California. We know we couldn't possibly win any public support. We couldn't win any battle in the legislature. And so the university in effect told us to get lost. Uh, you, you, you have the possibility of public opinion in Idaho behind you. And only in that way will you have the legislature behind you. I mean, if the legislature feels that it's it's got backing in public opinion, then you're going to win. And if not, you're going to lose. <laughs> That's my experience. Professor Ellis, you and I and Professor Yenor and Anna, we, we are basically operating within the world of the humanities. What about the sciences? I'm thinking particularly the physical sciences here. Are, are the physical sciences in some measure exempt? from no. the influence of this has has it no influence? no absolutely not the, at the moment in the in the university of california there is a very big push by the radical left to dominate the sciences so for example there was a recruitment to the biological sciences on the berkeley campus i mean the berkeley campus the flagship one of the great universities as it was anyway in the world and about a thousand applicants applied for this job, a faculty job in the biological sciences. The diversity bureaucracy managed to get hold of this, control it. They got hold of the applicant pool and reduced that thousand to 200 on the basis of diversity statements. That is to say, each applicant wrote a statement of what they would do for diversity and how they were in favor of diversity. And uh, what their experience had already been, how many wonderful things they'd done for diversity. In other words, they, there was a kind of a loyalty oath. Each applicant that was made it to the final 200 was in fact 
uh, uh, selected on the basis of being willing to toe the line. Now, I we actually California Association of Scholars through a Freedom of Information Act, we got copies of the successful diversity statements. And they read like you know Soviet show trial statements. They're just they're pathetic parroting of a party line. So anyway, at least one biological sciences faculty appointment has been made on the basis of kowtowing to radical leftism. And I'm sure that the rule of thumb is that uh, what starts in this way will continue and grow and grow and grow. And it'll spread to other campuses because if there's one thing we can see is that academics are like sheep. It'll it'll get copied. If it starts on the Berkeley, it'll get copied. It's certainly being copied on my campus already. It's copied on the Davis campus. Um, there is uh, there's no end to it. I I I don't see it stopping uh, because the sciences are getting corrupted quite rapidly. Yeah, well, and Alan, Alan, just I'll just briefly talk about the Idaho experience on that. What we have discovered in the reports is that uh, there isn't as much need to promote social justice ideology in the humanities colleges because they're already done. Yeah. <laughs> they're already uh, completely used with that ideology so that the explicit uh, attempts to develop diversity apparatus actually start at the University of Idaho in engineering. They're the first and only uh, college yeah. at the University of Idaho that has a director of diversity outreach. And, uh, and at Boise State, the two leading uh, colleges as far as infusing their shared value statements with uh, social justice language and goals are the College of Business and Economics and the College of Engineering. So, um, so it's precisely because they're behind that there's an explicit um, effort to catch up. And, um, and you know, I think that the, kind of the way John puts it uh, is that maybe the sciences are 20 years behind the humanities. Uh, that is maybe right now in the late 90s humanities departments are what the engineering departments of today are, but the trend uh, is, is toward the humanities departments, not away from it. Yeah, that I've was, been, I've been horrified. That it come from, uh, from someone uh, in our audience, I, I suspect is a, is a medical practitioner. And I think that that person was hoping to get a somewhat hopeful answer to the question. And uh, as Dr. Ellis and Dr. Yanor have, have said, that's, uh, that's not in fact uh, very much in prospect. Um, I wonder in the time remaining to us, if I could put a question to, to each of you, if the landscape of higher education is full of these forbidding cliffs that have to be scaled, are there things that we can do to help students who are going to have to ascend those cliffs? Uh, I have a question from the audience. Again, it's a question about what can we be doing if we've got students, we've got high schoolers who are going to go to college? Uh, what can we do to help them prepare in advance? So the question I want to put to each of you is, is there one really good, great book you can put into the hands of a prospective college student before they go off to college that they can read and master and which will be extremely useful for them in understanding 
this the strange lay of the landscape that they are about to step onto. And I guess I'd begin with Anna and then go to Scott and then go to, to John and say, you know, is there one book you can recommend this way? I guess a book I would recommend just to help someone develop critical thinking and realize how important it is to take responsibility for your own thoughts and actions and not to offload your responsibility for thinking to anybody else. I would say Jordan Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life. I think everyone going into college should read that. It's just a great framework for um, not just taking care of yourself, but just learning to take responsibility in your own life. And one of the biggest problems with um, social justice and just indoctrination at universities is it's trying to get students to offload their responsibility for thinking independently um, and to give it to, to someone else and just to conform. And so the more that students can resist that, um, the better off they'll be, um, and the more fulfilled they'll be in um, their ideas and their just pursuit of happiness in life. You know, I, I think you can go the inspirational route or the informing route. And, um, you know, inspirational books, uh, there's a recent one called Breaking Bread with the Dead um, that is just about the love of liberal learning and producing that, and, uh, and I think that that is something but informing oneself about what the nature of social justice ideology is. I think a very accessible book, aside from John's book um, uh, on the breakdown of higher education is uh, James Lindsay's co-authored book called Cynical Theories. Um, and he goes through each uh, race, sex, gender, um, uh, dis disability, and shows how the theories of social justice ideology have distorted our ability to, to see what is actually going on in those areas. So I think that book passes the informing, accessible test. John, do you have a recommendation? Well, uh, obviously I wrote a book to inform students about what was going on, breakdown uh, right of education. But uh, that I, book I'm is... going to suggest that, but I, I thought you, that you might you you might see thought think that I was trying to get a good grade in your class, but I, I would recommend <laughs> that. Yes. But uh, but the problem with that would be that uh, my book is likely to persuade people not to go to college. Um, what I what I did do I wrote a piece in the Claremont Review of Books about not going to college, basically, and what you could do and how you can get a perfectly good education at least in the short term. I mean, I'm all in favor of having people have a college education, obviously. I gave my life to it. But um, I'd far rather see people get on the web, find first-rate courses, which they can do in American history, American literature, world literature. Uh, those things are still available. Um, you can have uh, tremendous teaching, free without the expense of college, without the harassment of conservative thinkers or, or just ordinary thinkers, honestly, harassment of non-radic leftist thinkers, without that, that you get on campus. Uh, you won't get the uh, camaraderie of students on campus together, but um, you, you can't have everything, but you, you can certainly get a first-rate education just by getting first-rate professors who have pre-recorded splendid courses in every field on the web. If you choose carefully, uh, go about, uh, do your research carefully, find where the really first-rate courses are, 
you can get an education that is uh, better than the best anywhere because even Harvard had deteriorated sharply by 20 years ago. For example, in English literature, I wouldn't have sent anyone to Harvard 20 years ago already. Um, sorry, Harvard. Uh, but um, you know, with a bit of bit of research and forethought, you can find really wonderful stuff on the web. You get a terrific education. Um, you have to find some other way of meeting other young adults, but at least you get a good education. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you very, very much indeed. Let me conclude by this observation. The economic historian Robert Gordon points out in his really magisterial book, The Rise and Fall of American Growth, that the enormous spurt of prosperity, which made the century from 1870 to 1970 the American century, that, that prosperity, that growth has slowed and in some cases stagnated as we face the consequences of economic inequality, especially in the heartland, of fiscal deficits, of social breakdown, and especially deficient education. One principal cause of that deficiency has come from the politicization of education to the point where a college degree less and less resembles an intellectual attainment and becomes a political performance ritual. What will this mean for our future? Well, that's the question that John and Scott and Anna have tried to answer, and it now belongs to you to decide how to act. On behalf of the Fulner Institute and the Heritage Foundation, I bid you a pleasant but thoughtful good evening.